Holy Father, why do we live in a world that is bright and beautiful? A world that is wise and wonderful? Because that's who you are. You are bright and beautiful. You are wise and wonderful. And it is our privilege for a few moments longer to listen to Holy Scripture that you might teach us how to live to the fullest the life you have called us to. In Christ's name, Amen. Back in 1923, the financial world's creme de la creme. The economic movers and shakers of society gathered together in the Windy City at a hotel called Edgewater Beach. By the way, speaking of the Windy City, you know what? I went over to Chicago yesterday to pick Chrissy up. She's here to spend some time with us. And, and uh, four hours and 45 minutes it took to get to O'Hare. Yeah, it was, it was just awful. There was a terrible accident. It took two hours to go two miles. and uh, So you can get too much of the Windy City. But in 1923, here they were. Nine of the world's most successful financiers. The president of the largest independent steel company in the nation. The president of the largest utility company. The president of the largest gas company. The greatest wheat speculator. The president of the New York Stock Exchange. A member of the cabinet of the president of the United States. The greatest investor in Wall Street stock market. The head of the world's greatest monopoly. And finally, the president of the Bank of International Settlements. Talking about a high-powered convocation. These are the supreme masters of the financial universe. 1923. 25 years later, in 1948, how dramatic are the changes? Listen, Charles Schwab died bankrupt after living on borrowed money for the last five years of his life. Samuel Insull died a fugitive from justice, penniless in a foreign land. Howard Hobson went insane. Arthur Critton died abroad insolvent. Richard Whitney had just been released from Sing Sing, the federal penitentiary. Albert Fall was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore committed suicide, as did Leon Frazier and Ivor Kruger. Nine masters of finance who were mastered by their finances in the end. Wow. And what can you and I learn from this tragic recitation, one writer has put it this way, the extraordinary sameness of the hellish gravity of their famous lives is a divine warning. For God set the ghosts of these financial giants as spectral mid-century witnesses to a nation about to run amok in materialism. Today, their ghosts have faded and a new gallery of forlorn spirits is assembling, end quote. A new gallery of forlorn spirits. Once upon a time, Jesus told a story about that gallery. Only one forlorn spirit in this gallery. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12. The Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12. Jesus, by the way, is teaching his heart out when someone interrupts him, rather rudely, I would say, interrupts him, obviously not paying any attention to his preaching. Don't feel bad. We preachers are kind of used to that, and I don't think it fazed Jesus too much either. But the interruption cuts. In fact, if you, if you have a red-letter Bible like I do here in my new, new American Standard Bible, you'll see red letters 
all before verse 13. The interruption comes in verse 13. And it's read after verse 13. So there is, there is this interruption. Let's read the interruption. Luke, the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12, verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Nothing like a good old family squabble over dead mom or dead dad's estate, huh? Unless, of course, you're the family you remember of Ted Williams, who instead of debating, arguing over his estate, were arguing over his body. One of the kids wanted to keep it for cryogenics. Remember that. Wanted to freeze it and bring him back sometime later. Jesus responds, verse 14, But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? I am not a probate judge. But that reminds me, he said, of a story. Jesus was just like President Ronald Reagan, always ready with an anecdote, and he's ready today. He said, but before the story, in case I forget it, let me give you the punchline first. Here it goes. Verse 15. And then he said to them, the whole crowd, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then, here it comes. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself. Would you please note, it does not say he began reasoning with his wife. <clears throat> it does not say he reasoned with his children. He didn't reason with his, with his lawyer. And didn't reason with his God. He begins to reason with himself. Although maybe that was his little G-God that he was reasoning with. When I read this familiar story from the New American Standard Version, I want to tell you something. I noticed a profusion of first-person pronouns in this soliloquy. And so I said, oh, I've got to mark them. Check it out. I came up with 13. See how many you come up with in your translation, all right? 13. Let's start reading here this, this soliloquy. Uh, verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself, this rich man. And saying, verse 17, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? There are three of them right there. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you. So he's still talking to himself. You have many goods laid up for many years to to come. Take your ease, eat and drink, and be merry. There they are, ladies and gentlemen. Thirteen first-person pronouns in a very brief soliloquy. Now, you know what a soliloquy is, don't you? I mean, they had to invent a word in the English language to describe those of us who talk to ourselves. That's what a soliloquy is. I happen to come from a long line of soliloquists who can be found all over the house, muttering and laughing and talking and even arguing we do with ourselves. In fact, the most famous, I, I need to tell you this, the most famous soliloquist in our tribe is my sister Carrie. She's married to the pastor of the Union College Church, Keith Jacobson. And Carrie, she has it down to an art form. She can carry on a running, non-stop conversation with herself. She can laugh. She can groan. She cries. No extra charge. I tell you what, it's a joy just to sit around the corner and listen to the conversation. But the farmer, this farmer takes the absolute cake. Have you noticed this? I mean, he talks about my, my crops, my goods, my grain. I tell you what, that would give you a migraine, wouldn't it? If you were so focused 
on me. Would to God. Seriously. Would to God. When we became that self-absorbed, we would get a migraine to remind us. It's, it's askew. It's all off. My, by the way, this is the one migraine that can kill you. It can kill you. And sure enough, late one hot and humid summer's midnight, the rich farmer lay tossing and turning in that stifling darkness when suddenly in, that, in those suffocating shadows, the open window's curtain begins to mysteriously tremble and it parts and a chilling spree sweeps into that black dark. And on that cold wind, there is an icy voice, You fool! You fool! Tonight, you die. And then who possesses your possessions. Well, the panic. It's happened to you, hasn't it? The, the rich farmer jerks up out of his sleep onto his elbow, staring widely about. Where is this faceless voice? When without warning, searing pain rips through his chest and he collapses on those rumpled sheets of a cardiac arrest. He dies at midnight. Jesus telling the story here. Pick it up in verse 20. And God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Most people read this story and figure out that the punchline is wrapped up in the last two words of the tale. You fool! I mean, come on, how many people can you count on one finger that God has ever called a fool? As far as I can ascertain, this man has the dubious distinction of being the only person in all of Holy Writ ever called by God fool. I mean, that's a punchline in anybody's book. But the punchline, listen to this fellow reasoner of Holy Scripture, the punchline to Jesus' story is actually not found in the, it's not found in the last two words, it's found in the first Two words. I want to read that verse again, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. There, there they are. The land. The first two words. Because the punchline of the story is about the land and not the fool. That point is so pivotal to understanding Jesus' teaching that I wish you'd grab your brand new study guide. Should be in your worship bulletin here. The final study guide in this series that we are wrapping up today. Now, you know the drill. Pull your study guide out. If you don't have one, raise your hand. The ushers will get it. And I want to say, if you're watching on TV, let's put the website on the screen now. www.pmchurch.tv If you'll go to our website, click on to our, our series, The Christ of the Passion. And the final teaching in this series is entitled, As Easy as A-B-C. This is a vital point, pivotal, right here at the outset. And let's make sure we get it. Take your new study guide and fill it in, please. The punchline to Jesus' tale is not the, write it in, last two words. You fool. Okay, write that in. The punchline to Jesus' tale is not the last two words, you fool, but rather the first two words, the land. Jesus is utterly clear. It is the land of the farmer that was productive, not the farmer. Do you get that? The land was what was productive. Write it in, please. The land of a rich man 
quoting Jesus, was very productive. The land was productive. And by the way, who owns the land? Let's just do a quick little thumbnail sketch of Scripture to find out. Would you write it in, please? Psalm 24. You have to write in the 24. Psalm 24, verse 1. How does this line go? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Write that in, please. So how much of it, how much of all is all? And all. In fact, that's, that's the same message of the psalmist in Psalm 50. Let's put Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. God is speaking. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. Would you write that in, please? For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I have a good friend named Don Jacobson, and he, Don, Don used to say, whenever we would talk about the cattle on a thousand hills, and by the way, he would say, from the latest reports we've received, God also owns the hills under the cattle. And I like that. All the world is mine. How much is, 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 is his? How much is all? Uh, would you write this in, please? Haggai 2, verse 8. God is speaking again. The gold and silver are mine. Fill them in, please. The silver and the gold. It's all, all of it. How much of it is, does he own? He owns it all. In fact, let's put one more up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read this, verse 19. Or do you not know, St. Paul writes, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Fill it in, please. Your body is not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And that is precisely Jesus' point in this punchy little parable. His punchline is not, you fool. The punchline is the land. The land of a rich man was very productive. The land, really, two simple code words for G-O-D. Which means that Jesus' point is as simple as A-B-C. Write it in, please. A-all-B belongs to the C-creator. That's the point. The land was productive. All belongs. It all belongs to the Creator. It all belongs to God. The farmer was a fool for forgetting. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, everything, all, whatever got us to this point, what's kept us going and growing, it all comes. It's as simple as ABC. It all belongs to the Creator. Ah, but how quickly, how quickly you and I forget, don't we? It reminds me of the story of two young brothers who were spending the night at their grandparents' home. My brother Greg and I used to do that. We had grandparents up in uh, Oshawa, Canada. Oh, we love going to visit Grandma and Grandpa. Anyway, at bedtime, the boys knelt beside their beds to say their prayers. And the youngest one, the youngest one begins praying at the top of his lungs. I pray for a new bicycle. I pray for a new Nintendo. I pray for a new VCR. His, his older brother leaned over and nudged him. He said, why are you shouting your prayers? God isn't deaf, to which the little boy replied, I know, but Grandma is. 
has God become for us some kind of doting but benevolent heavenly grandma to us? So that when we come, I mean, what What do you mean? Most of us desperately want God to be rich toward us. I, I want a new bicycle. And don't forget the new Nintendo and the VCR. Always asking God to be rich toward us. But in a radical reversal, Jesus said, uh-uh, got it wrong. Verse 21, how did he put it? He said, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Did you catch that? Rich toward God. Are you rich? Are you rich toward God? Write it in. Are you? He said, oh, come on, Dwight, what's that mean? How, how, how am I supposed to be rich toward God? Hallelujah, Jesus doesn't leave us for one split second to have to guess what it means to be rich toward God. Jesus is ready. Would you read a little further on in the very same chapter, Luke 12? Pick it up in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Here it comes, verse 33. Sell your possessions. And give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'd say, I'd say he's very clear. Wouldn't you? I mean, it's as simple as one, two, three. Write them down, please. The three instructions of Jesus that you just heard. Instruction number one, he says, mentally divest, divest of your possessions. You say, Dwight, but it says sell your possessions. Possessions. Jesus doesn't mean for, for all of us to sell everything. If we all sold everything, how in the world could we minister to a world in need? It's impossible. You've got to think. But mentally... How do we know that it's mentally? Because Luke, in the very same book, chapter 17, he says, write it in, remember Lot's wife. What's going on there? She had not mentally divested of herself. Her heart was still back in Sodom. She did not divest. She had another little g-god, see? Three simple... It's as, it's, as, it's as simple as one, two, three. Number one, he says... Mentally divest of your possessions. Number two, he says, give to, write it in, give to charity. Give to charity. Oh, you just read it. Remember who on this case? Oh, remember the widow's might. Luke also deals with that. Pastor Tim just, a, what, three Sabbaths ago powerfully preached on that. I sat on the front row in First Church. Whoa. Remember the widow's might. What is she doing? She is giving to charity. The most precious charity in her life she's giving to. Three, as simple as one, two, three. Number one, mentally divest of your possessions. Number two, give to charity. And number three, invest in heaven. Invest in heaven. Jesus just said that to you and me. Remember, write this one. Remember the rich fool. He forgot to invest in heaven. He put all his treasure here. Boom, he's gone. And so is his eternity. Wrong bank, buddy. Wrong bank. Should have invested. Should have invested in the bank of heaven. Alright? Simple as one, two, three. Alright. But, would you be interested to cheerfully follow Jesus' one, two, three instructions in a way that is 
also just as simple as one, two, three. Who ever likes to sound like a broken record? Not me. But would you take the tithe envelope that is in the pew rack right in front of you? We have enough. We have enough to go around. Would you reach to the pew? And if they're all clustered in front of you, would you pass them around so that everybody in your pew gets a tithe envelope? Take a tithe envelope. Because this, this, is, this is amazing. The, the simple three instructions that Jesus gives here in Luke 12 are a perfect fit with the first three lines of our tithe envelope. Take a look at this, will you? Take a tithe envelope. By the way, you can keep this envelope. You don't have to put it back. Keep it. Take it home with you. No charge. All right. Take a tithe envelope out. Take a look at this. Does it really? Is, is there a match? Come on, Dwight. You pull my leg. Take a look at this. Line one. What is line one? Line one is God's tithe. Let's put that up, please. Line one, God's tithe. Does it match Jesus' instruction number one? What was his instruction? Mentally divest of your possessions. Ladies and gentlemen, that is precisely what returning God's tithe, the first 10% of my income that He claims is His own, that's what it does. When I return His 10%, I am acknowledging the truth that ABC all belongs to my Creator. That's what tithe does. That's why, by the way, I'll just tell you my personal testimony, that's why I choose to return His tithe. I want Him to know, I need you, God. I need you to man- manage all of my life, all of my finances, all of my career, all of my family, all of my health. You be the CFO, the chief financial operator and officer in my life. When I return God's 10%, I'm saying ABC. Line one, perfect match with Jesus' instruction number one, which is mentally divest of your possessions. Let's check out line two. What is line two? Line two is God's church. What is Jesus' instruction number two? Give to charity. Listen to me carefully because, look, I know you receive a hundred. Is this true? Do you receive one hundred Direct mail invitations every single month to give to another worthy charity. Isn't that true? Don't you? Listen carefully. There is no more worthy charity on earth than your own home church. Period. Because Pioneer and every other church on the face of this earth is totally dependent upon your giving to its charitable mission. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen... The local church, I don't care where you're watching from, if you go to a church anywhere on earth, this principle is true. It survives on the basis of what you give. Which is why I can't understand. How could I, how could I come to line one and say, okay, okay, God, uh, you require this. I will go ahead, begrudgingly to be sure, I will go ahead and do line one, but I will not do line two. Do you know what, ladies and gentlemen? If that were your response, you are the next to the most selfish fool on earth. Because the most selfish fool on earth doesn't fill in line one even. Explain that to me. I mean, can you imagine it? Wouldn't it be the height of arrogant ingratitude to the local body of Christ for me to be worshiping here week after week after week and never giving a blessed penny? And by the way, if you think that handful of quarters or those two dollar bills that you throw is sufficient to pay your dues to belong to this place, you're no smarter than the fool in Jesus' story. That blessed widow, what did she do? 
took that little purse, turned it upside down. She emptied her purse for her favorite charity. And what was her charity? She gave to the church. And Jesus said, whoa, did you see what this little gray-haired lady on Social Security just did? She gave more than the entire 3,000-member Pioneer Memorial Church combined. Oh, by the way, the good news is that nobody around here, as far as I can tell, is asking us to empty all our purses and our wallets for the sake of line two. You're not going to believe this, but this is all they're suggesting. They're saying take line one, whatever it is on line one, and just divide it by three. Just put one third, three percent of your income, just one third of line one and fill in line two. Perfect match. Line one, God's tithe. Mentally divest of your possessions. Line two, God's church. Give to charity, Jesus says. And finally, line three, God's children. And what was Jesus' third instruction? It was invest in heaven. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus somewhere say, for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a little child. Didn't he say that? You want to invest in heaven? We have 600 reasons right here in this parish for you to invest in eternity right now. It's called line three. It's called Christian education. Ruth Murdoch Elementary School, Andrews Academy, they are our church school. Donkeys don't belong in school, but kids do. You know what? This is true. If every single one of us, and by the way, it's not even 3% for Christian education. They're coming along and telling us, look, 2%. Take line one, divide it by five. Only one-fifth of line one you put on line three. And if we did, there would not be a single child in this entire parish who could not take advantage of a Christ-centered Christian education. It's as easy as ABC. Because it all belongs to the Creator Anyway, I want to end with a quotation. You have it there in your study guide. To the death of Christ. This is Desire of Ages, page 660. Beautiful. To the, to, to the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. Isn't this something? The bread we eat is the purchase of His broken body. The water we drink is bought by His spilled blood. Never one saint or sinner eats his daily food, but she is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross, I love this, the cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf. It is reflected in every water spring, end quote. Which means that ABC can also read this way, write it in, all belongs to Christ. Thanks to Calvary, it all belongs to to Christ, Even the crumbs of bread and the grains of rice that we are going to have for dinner today are stamped with the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah. All belongs to Christ. One day, when he was away, John Wesley's house burned to the ground, the great preacher. When a messenger arrived with the news of that terrible loss, John Wesley reacted in this way. The Lord's house burned. One less responsibility for me. 
Let's pray. O oh God, would that we too would hold what we have that lightly, for it all belongs to You. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as long as we still possess what You have so graciously given to us, Father, grant that we may be rich toward You and Your church and Your children for the sake of the passion of Christ. Amen.